Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Door, a weekly broadcast that examines what Lutheran Christians believe about God, the world, and us. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius of Gethsemane Lutheran Church, and I invite you to join us for the next hour. And later, we will take questions at 740-383-9944, that's 740-383-WWGH, or on Facebook at the Wittenberg Door, where you can submit your questions live. Please join us now on the Wittenberg Door. Hello, folks. Good morning and welcome to the Wittenberg Door. I'm Pastor Brett Cornelius of Gethsemane Lutheran Church. And we are glad to have you with us for the next hour. I just ran into the building. <laughs> and uh, I'm not used to running. I guess we better... Uh, get my clock adjusted at home. Well, folks, uh, we're glad to have you with us, as I said. Uh, I want you to remember that uh, the Wittenberg Door is a call-in program, so if you have questions or comments you want to add to the program, we invite you to call. The number is 740-387-WWGH. That's 383-WWGH. That's uh, 3839944 for the alphabetically impaired. Okay. Still catching my breath. Very good. Well, folks, of course, today we, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened last Saturday uh, in Colorado Springs. Uh, we may be talking a little bit about what happened just a couple of days ago in San Bernardino. Uh, but before we do, I want to give a little history lesson here. Uh, I think Sean knows I'm a buff, Civil War buff. I love, love to read about and talk about the Civil War. Well, before the Civil War, slavery was the burning issue of the day. It dominated American politics for half a century before the conflict. A growing number of people, mostly in the North, but in both regions, began to regard the enslavement of human beings merely because of their race as a moral evil. Reformers in the North began publishing newspapers to influence the public and bring about the abolition of the institution. To be sure, not everyone was convinced of the evil of slavery, and many simply didn't want to be bothered with the subject because they believed it had nothing to do with them. They didn't necessarily approve of slavery, but they didn't see why it should be such a central issue to our political life. And a good deal of the abolitionists were despised for their political activism. The abolitionists, the abolitionists were considered by most, North and South, to be radicals and troublemakers. The abolitionists, however, were not deterred. In spite of the criticism, they continued to write, speak, and organize over the issue until things came to a head. And that happened first in Kansas, what we now know as Bloody Kansas. Partisans on both sides of the issue committed horrible crimes against their opponents in order to either make the state slave or free. One activist, along with his sons, captured five pro-slavery men and hacked them to death with broadswords. When the issue was settled and Kansas became a free state, this man and his sons decided that the time had come to go to the heart of slave country and abolish the institution once and for all. So on October 16, 1859, 
John Brown and his son seized the armory at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. Along with some ex-slaves, they planned to take their arms, distribute them to slaves, and move down the Appalachian Ridge into the heart of slave country, killing slaveholders and arming their slaves as an army of the Lord. The plan went awry from the beginning. As soon as they took the armory, the townspeople, hearing of the disturbance, surrounded it and laid siege to Brown and his sons. The first person killed was a free black, a Harper's Ferry mail carrier. The Marines were called in, led by Colonel Robert E. Lee, and the armory was stormed. Brown's sons were killed in the shootout, and Brown himself was wounded and captured. He was tried, and on December 2, 1859, they hanged John Brown for treason. Now, to some, John Brown became a hero. To others, he was a demon. Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick, called Brown the meteor of the war, which he certainly was. Southern men began to form militias, convinced that the abolitionists of the North would incite their slaves to murder them in their beds. Frederick Douglass praised Brown. Abraham Lincoln, while sympathizing with Brown's cause, said no man was ever so justly hanged. Now today, every American agrees with John Brown that slavery is evil. The right to own slaves would not even be considered by anyone, black or white, north or south. That issue has thankfully been settled. But there is a similar issue today in American politics, an issue that dominates our political life, and that issue is abortion. There's much being written and published but for, both for and against abortion, and occasionally it seems close to coming to the brink of violence. Last Saturday, our TV channels were filled with the violence occurring at the Planned Parenthood Clinic in Colorado Springs. A shooter had fired several rounds going into the clinic and was holding hostages inside. Now what his motives were, we still do not know. But many have speculated that this was an act of violence directed against the practice of abortion. Three people were killed in the shooting, including a pro-life pastor who also served as a police officer. Was this man animated by such a hatred for abortion that he decided that violence was the answer? We have yet to find out. If that is indeed the case, then how are Christians supposed to regard what happened? Do we, like Frederick Douglass, praise the violence and agree with the actions taken against the wicked practice of abortion? Of course not. Folks, we are surrounded in this world by a host of injustices, and the answer is never to take the law into our own hands. If you're a Christian, you don't need me to tell you that. Jesus himself told Peter, Put away your sword, for he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. Our Lord told Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting. In other words, we don't establish God's rule with violence. That's the office of civil government. Whenever a person takes the law into his own hands, no matter the cause, he is appointing himself judge, jury, and executioner. And when they do, they become as guilty as those who, are they, who they are fighting God has given civil government the responsibility to punish the guilty and establish peace. It is their office to use the sword. 
in this country after a fair trial by jury. And never is it carried out by a private citizen. It only becomes your office when you're appointed to serve on a jury, sworn in as a peace officer, or elected as a government official to carry out the laws of the land. So what do we say? We say just as John Brown was guilty and wrong for his raid on Harper's Ferry, there was hatred of slavery was right. So any private citizen who attempts to end abortion with violence guilty before God and man. Sadly, as soon as the police tape goes down at the Planned Parenthood in Colorado Springs, the legal murder of human beings will begin again. The police won't be called. They won't surround the clinic and demand the perpetrators come out with their hands up. It will simply be business as usual. And the business of Planned Parenthood is the murder and destruction of innocent lives. But this practice has to be ended in a lawful way. We petition our lawmakers. We appoint judges who have a healthy respect for innocent life. We write, speak, and organize against the brutal practice of abortion. But we do not attempt to carry out our agenda by taking the law into our own hands. Anyone who does so is justly condemned by lawful authorities. There we have it. Now, uh, some of you may disagree with that. Some of you may agree. If you have a question or a comment that you'd like to add to the program, we do invite you to call. The number is 383-9944. And, uh, you know, one of the things that was said after this uh, attack, and, and by the way, we still remember that this, uh, we don't really know what this guy's issues were, if there was some uh, mental health issues. Uh, it, uh, he, he has uh, uh, had some political activism in his past, uh, but we don't know. He, he wasn't even a, a member of a church. So we're not really sure what his motives were as of yet. And, uh, you know, in a, in a reasonable society, we wait to find out what those, what those motives were. So we'll see. We will see what happened. But assuming that his motives were to end the practice of abortion, to commit uh, terror in order to, to uh, achieve a political end, of course, we have to condemn that. Now, just as in the South before the Civil War, at the time of John Brown's raid, uh, many Southerners, many Southern newspaper editors, were blaming the abolitionists of the North, uh, uh, um, men like William Lloyd Garrison, who published a, a, a free, uh, pub he published a newspaper about, about abolition. And, and so they were saying, you know, men like William Lloyd Garrison are responsible for this raid on Harper's Ferry because they've incited madmen like John Brown to do this. And of course, that's the accusation that you've heard from some in Planned Parenthood. They've said, you know, uh, these people that produced the videos about what Planned Parenthood is doing in their clinics and especially uh, the sale of uh, body parts after the abortion is, is done uh, so incited this guy. And, and uh, it, was re it was reportedly said that he said to the police as he was coming out, 
uh, there won't be any more baby parts sold there, right? Which would uh, tend, which would seem to, in in many people's minds, indicate that uh, these this is what incited him to do what he did. Uh, we don't really know that. That's just a uh, for right now. We think that's a rumor. The authorities haven't said that. Uh, but uh, does that make, for instance, the producers of the videos guilty? Does that implicate them in, in this crime? Well, certainly not. You know, to make somebody aware of what's happening in those clinics, uh, to tell the truth about what Planned Parenthood does, uh, is not a call to violence, right? It's not a call to violence. And uh, uh, so people have the freedom of speech. And of course, yes, uh, people who are for the abolition of abortion are certainly trying to uh, make it a central issue in our politics and are trying to influence uh, legislators and judges, as we should do. Uh, we have uh, that First Amendment right to uh, petition our government for a redress of grievances, right? Right. Constitutional amendment, First Amendment. First Amendment rights, and so uh, the right of freedom of speech, as long as it's not a call to violence, uh, is uh, certainly something that uh, needs to happen. And in a society where you're trying to decide right and wrong, you're trying to decide what the uh, what the uh, practice of our country should be, the legal uh, uh, statute of our country should be, our states. Uh, certainly Christians have a voice and by the way not only Christians are against abortion uh, there are even atheists who are against abortion recognize it as evil uh, and uh, people of other religions that recognize that it's an evil so uh, yeah we continue to write and speak and organize and, and petition our government and hopefully this practice will be ended uh, it is, it is an injustice. But remember, folks, it's never our office. It's never the office of a private citizen to uh, redress injustices. That's what we have civil government for. That's why God has appointed civil government. So uh, we continue to write and organize and speak, but that's that's where it ends with us, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, that's, uh, that's my commentary for this week. You know, we have this issue also with uh, the attack in San Bernardino, California, uh, two days ago, which we're just beginning to learn the details of, uh, the people who did it, what they may have had in mind. Um, and, I, and I think this is, uh, you know, we have called this radical jihadism, uh, radical Islam. Uh, I'm going to say something that might seem a little controversial. Our, our politicians in the last 14 years, since 9-11, even before, uh, there were attacks on the, on, our, uh, on the World Trade Center 1994, when Clinton was in office. And... Uh, and, of course, uh, the hostages that were uh, taken in Tehran, uh, 
1979. Yeah. So there's been trouble. There's been trouble with radical Islam for, for quite some time. But really, it really heated up in 2001, with the attacks on 9/11. Yeah. Uh, and so our our politicians have been um, very careful to say that is this is not Islam. Islam is a peaceful religion. And that the problem here is you have a few radicals who are wrongly interpreting the text, right? Right. Of, of the Quran. Uh, and uh, folks, I want to know what you think about that. I, I have, I haven't had a problem with that in the past. I thought, well, you know, if that's you know, we we don't certainly don't want to provoke people who are peaceful. We don't want to blame people who are peaceful and, and lay something to their charge doesn't belong. I don't, want, I don't want people accusing Christians of being uh, violent instigators because uh, some Christian does something crazy, right? right. And, uh, and you don't, uh, you know, by extension, you want to be fair to your neighbor. You want to love your neighbor, and, and that includes being fair to them. You don't want to, you don't want to uh, uh, accuse your typical Muslim living in this country or anywhere of being radical or being uh, somehow dangerous when they're not. Uh, so, you know, in the past, I've, I think that's pretty much where I've come down. I thought it was a good idea to, to speak peacefully about Islam. Uh, but I think, uh, I think there is a difference. I believe there are peaceful Muslims who want to come to this country and practice their religion, but but live, essentially live as citizens in this country along with other citizens of different religions or no religion, that they can live peacefully. But I don't think that Islam itself is a peaceful religion. I know that's going to be controversial to say that. So you might ask me, well, how did you come to this conclusion? Now, the Quran. Uh, one of the one of the things that has been said by politicians, by news commentators, is that those who are taking these violent actions of jihad are misinterpreting the Quran. The Quran never meant for us to take up arms and and try to establish a theocracy by by the force of arms. So, when uh, verses in the Quran are pointed out, and it's you know uh, as uh, you know verses that uh, uh, encourage jihadism and fights against the uh, uh, pagan or the unbeliever, right? Against the infidel. Um, they said, well, you have to interpret, you have to interpret those passages uh, according to uh, a metaphorical sense. Right, right. That, that, that that's. I mean, you literally go out and you fight against the pagan or the infidel. You uh, you do it spiritually, right? Right. So so the question is, is that the correct interpretation of the Quran? Is that what the Quran really means to say? Now, I think the best way to to uh, understand the New Testament is to understand it in the life and context of Jesus and the apostles, right? right. So if someone for, were, for instance, to say that Christianity was, 
just as violent as as uh, as Islam. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, certainly there are Christians who have acted violently, but you say to yourself, is that because they're acting in accord with their religion and their text, or because they're acting against it? Well, I think plainly you look at the life of Jesus and the apostles, and you say. Uh, Christians who act violently are acting against the text, against what Jesus and the apostles stood for. These apostles and Jesus himself didn't commit acts of violence. They didn't start wars. They didn't try to establish Christianity by, by the sword. In fact, Christianity, Jesus at the center of Christianity, was taken when uh, Peter tried to defend Jesus with the sword, Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword, right? Right. And Jesus was taken and crucified and buried, of course, on the third day he rose again. Uh, even in the life of the apostles, the apostles were also taken by governing authorities. They were beaten. They were exiled. They were uh, crucified, beheaded, right? Right. And never was there any accusation against the apostles or, or Jesus of kind of a violent overthrow. The closest we ever came to that in, in uh, Christianity was the false accusation that Nero leveled against the Christians when, when Nero burned Rome in order to rebuild it. <laughs> he accused the Christians of, of burning Rome. In a, in a kind of a violent overthrow of the civil order. And of course, everyone knows historically that was, that was just a false accusation. So the best way to understand the text of the New Testament is to look at the life of Jesus and the life of the apostles. Now, let's apply that to the text of the Quran. And if we were to say the best way to understand the import and meaning of the Quran is to look at the life of Muhammad and his immediate followers. And there we find something quite different because, it, because Muhammad did indeed establish the rule of Islam by the sword, by burning, by pillaging, by uh, conquest. Yeah. And this went on for, uh, you know, for Muhammad in the in the sixth century, in the middle of the 500 A.D., and uh, and this went on, uh, and, well, for a couple hundred years, and it spread through the Middle East, it spread through North Africa, and uh, and made its way into Europe until it was stopped by Charles Martel in the eighth century in in France at the at the Battle of Tours, and uh, Islam was uh, confined to the to Spain, basically, in Europe uh, for the next 600 years until it was finally put down in, in uh, Spain. But what we see in the life of Muhammad and his immediate followers is violence and a, an attempt to establish the rule of Allah through violence. So I think we have to say, if we're going to really be honest about this, that those who are committing this jihad people like ISIS. And, uh, and, and, and by the way, also remember 
that it's not just a few, um, uh, this is not a novel thing for Islam. If you go to Saudi Arabia, for instance, where Sharia law is strictly enforced, women are stoned for adultery, uh, thieves have their hands cut off, right? If you try to, if you possess a Bible in Saudi Arabia, uh, you can be thrown in jail for that. Even, you can even be executed for that. There is a pastor in Iran right now who's being an American pastor who was uh, Iranian descent and went back to Iran to, I think, to do mission work and uh, was arrested by the authorities, right? right? That's true in Pakistan where you have Christians who have spoken against Islam and uh, uh, Asiya Bibi, uh, a woman who, uh, who supposedly spoke something blasphemous about Islam, about the Prophet Muhammad, and was uh, sentenced to death yeah. for it. So it's not just a few rat. It's not just ISIS. This has been the rule for countries that are, that are uh, uh, ruled by Islam. Um, there, are, there have been some moderate, Turkey, for instance, which for the most part has been a moderate Muslim country. But that's the exception and not the rule. And, and even in Turkey, uh, there have been terrible slaughters of Christians by the government within the last you know, 150, 200 years. And it is becoming, Turkey itself, is becoming uh, more radical. In fact, there's even um, uh, indications that Turkey is in some way aligning itself with ISIS and certainly buying oil from ISIS. Uh, our, our president has, has uh, come out and, and criticized Turkey, telling it to, to shut down its borders, to stop buying this oil from, from this organization. So, so I don't think it's, I think uh, people who have the correct interpretation, interpretation of the Quran are people who are trying to establish this caliphate. And so also you have this young man and his wife, in San Bernardino. Um, reportedly, he had a, a Jewish colleague at his place of work. They both did the same job, and they would get into arguments about Islam, whether it was a peaceful religion or not. And this fellow, as he was making these bombs, as he was buying all this armory, <laughs> uh, was arguing with his co-worker, Islam is a peaceful religion. At the moment, that he's arguing with his, pe with his co-worker that Islam is a peaceful religion. He's amassing all these instruments of death and planning an attack. And uh, so are, are there peaceful Muslims and are there Muslims who uh, can live in a civil society with, with uh, the infidel? Well, I believe there are. Of course there are. Yeah. But, those, but they're the ones who really don't aren't understanding the Quran or they're, they're putting their own interpretation on the Quran, right? Right. Uh, those who understand the original intent of Muhammad are people like ISIS. Yeah. And, uh, and, and we see it where, wherever you have a, a Muslim-majority country, you have the rule of Sharia and you have persecution and um, uh, dimin uh, diminu diminution, it's called, of 
Christians and Jews. So uh, I don't think it's, I don't think it's uh, uh, against Islam. I think it's, that's what Islam kind of is. It's a, it's a radical, um, political religion. And, uh, you know, where, where Christianity, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Islam says, yes, our kingdom is of this world. <laughs> well, folks, uh, if you do have a question or comment, I want to remind you that the uh, number is uh, 740-383-9944. We'd like to hear from you if you have a question or comment. Uh, but as we do often in this program, we want to turn now to uh, the upcoming lessons for this Sunday. Uh, we are now in the season of Advent, which is... Uh, uh, Advent is a word that means a coming or appearing. Um, and in Advent, we look forward to and we think about the coming of Jesus. Um, you know, a lot of churches, uh, that's, they do an awful lot of thinking about the coming of Jesus. Uh, uh, in, in a liturgical system like ours, an electionary system, there are certain times a year when you think about it. Now, preparing for Christmas, we think about not only how Jesus came, into the world, but we think about how he's coming again, right? Right. right. <laughs> now, um, what we have here, our first lesson here is uh, in the Old Testament. It's from Micah chapter 4. Now, uh, Micah was a prophet in, uh, in about 450 B.C., about 450 years before Jesus. And he is, uh, in this text, he's telling about uh, what happens at the last day. Uh, the people of Israel are, are very concerned that, uh, that there's, there doesn't seem to be a distinction between the righteous and the unrighteous. It seems to be in, in their world, it seems to be that, that there's no really uh, advantage to believing in God and to trusting God to, uh, to take care of you. Uh, because Christians fare as about as well as, uh, or they would say, you know, uh, believers fare as about as well as unbelievers or uh, uh, people who worship another god. And so, uh, you know, how do we answer that question? And how does how does Micah here answer the question? Uh, you know, we we see it, we see it observed in our Christians get cancer, just like unbelievers, right? Right. Uh, in the attacks in Paris a few weeks ago, um, uh, there was no distinction between people who believed in Christ and people who did. Everybody got slaughtered together, right? Right. Uh, and it was probably true on uh, on Wednesday as well that uh, in that Christmas party or holiday party probably was in that holiday party there were probably those who believed in Christ and those who were so. But they all died together, right? Right, and uh, uh, Christians go through financial hardships just as just as unbelievers do, right? Right. So there's really no distinction. We we see this ourselves, and we wonder: Is there really any distinction between what happens with Christians and and what happens just with? Is there any advantage in believing in Christ? Yeah. Well, uh, there is, uh, and, and this, is what, this is what Micah is addressing here in, in chapter 4, which is the Old Testament lesson for this Sunday. He says, um, 
I'm going to just go a, a few verses before in chapter 3, verse uh, 16. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. This is wonderful. Mike is telling you, look, uh, God hears you when you cry to him, right? So that's one distinction. between. He says, the Lord uh, heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. In other words, God has your name yeah. in his book, right? Right. He's not forgetting you. You know, I have a, I have a book. Uh, as a pastor, I keep a book of all my church members. And in my book, I... I I can't keep track of who showed up on what Sunday so that I know who to pray for and find out why so-and-so hasn't shown up for three weeks and are they sick, you know, or are they having something else go on? Uh, but there's a book I have, right? right? So that I can keep track of these people. Well, God has a book, and our name is in it, right? The, right. the name of the baptized is in, is in this book. So uh, written before, those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make my up my treasure possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. In other words, there will be a distinction between the, the believer and the non-believer. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So that's kind of the preface to this, what, uh, what Micah is telling us. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But as for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn again the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now, what does this have to do with, with the advent of, of, our, of our Lord? Well, I think part of this is telling us that what we don't see in this life, the distinction between the unbelievers, the believer gets cancer, the unbeliever gets cancer. The believer dies in a, in a needless slaughter, the unbeliever dies in needless slaughter. When a plane goes down, there are Christians and non-Christians aboard, right? Right. So we don't, we don't see the distinction now. But what he's telling us about the last day, about the coming of Jesus, is that on that day, we will see the distinction. And those who have been taken by, by God, those who have been kept by God, uh, the sun of righteousness uh, is going to rise with healing in its wings. In other words, that day is coming in which everything we've experienced in life, all the horror, all the violence, all the uh, uh, disease and deformity and everything that we experience in this life, a day is coming that's going to heal all those things. And it's a, it's a day of God's kingdom, right? Right. And, it, of course, it's a day when uh, also the wicked will be distinguished. Those who, those who don't have faith will be distinguished, and they will be, will be punished, right? There, there is coming a day when there will be a distinction between the, the believer and the unbeliever. Now, here's the thing we need to remember. 
There's none righteous, not even one, Scripture says, right? Right. So in other words, technically speaking and, and rightfully speaking, when Jesus comes, really, we all deserve to be punished, every one of us, because none of us have kept God's laws. He says here, remember the law and the statutes that I commanded Moses at Horeb for all Israel, really for all mankind. The Ten Commandments are for all mankind. But none of us have kept those commandments. So really, uh, if we were considered by ourselves, according to our conduct, we would all be wicked, and we would all deserve the judgment that comes. But the way that the Son of Righteousness rises with healing in its wings is because Jesus himself came in his first advent, in his first coming, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, right? We're getting ready to celebrate this. And, and he himself became uh, the, um, the sacrifice and the, uh, uh, the object of God's wrath when he was nailed to the cross and suffered and died not for his own sin but for ours. And this judgment, this mashing down of like ashes, you know, everything that we always deserved was, was meted out to Christ at the cross where he received that judgment. And that's why all believers now on the last day expect not judgment, but the son of righteousness and good and healing and blessing from God. Right? Okay. Right. Now, uh, the epistle lesson, we have three lessons, typically each Sunday. The uh, first lesson usually comes from the Old Testament. The epistle lesson here is from Romans, and it's Romans chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. And it tells us, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name and again rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people and again praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles will hope. And he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now look at what Paul's telling us there. <laughs> and look at just the language. What is he He's talking about hope. He's talking about encouragement, right? right. Uh, and he, he uses this word hope over and over again, four times in this text, he's using the word hope. And uh, my friends, uh, that hope that, uh, that Paul is talking about is the hope that was, as I said before, earned for us by Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection. And the hope that we uh, await for on the last day. Christians, uh, 
may may be here for some time, even to the last day. Some, but many of us may not make it to the last day. We may we may die. We may go to our graves. But those who do die, those who go to their graves, go with hope, believing that God is going to raise them, just as He raised Jesus. And that is uh, that is our Christian hope. It's the last. It's the last thing in the Apostles' Creed. I, I believe that in the resurrection of the dead and, and uh, the life everlasting, right? And uh, so our Christian hope is always directed toward that. It's always directed toward the last day, which we're celebrating in Advent, the day of Jesus' return, when uh, everything that he did for us in his first Advent will come to us in his second Advent, in his second coming. So, uh, so that's Paul. And, uh, and then we have, uh, finally, our gospel lesson. Now, the gospel lesson is from Luke chapter 21, and it's part of what, uh, it's part of what has been called the Olivet Discourse. Because when Jesus teaches what, he, what we have here in, in Luke 21, he teaches it on the Mount of Olives as they're overlooking Jerusalem. And... Uh, so uh, what it is, it's about uh, the destruction of Jerusalem coming, uh, that, that destruction which had not happened yet in Jesus in the Apostles' day, but will have happened by 70 A.D. when uh, Vespasian comes in and destroys the city of Jerusalem and, and tears down the temple. Uh, the way this comes up is Jesus and his disciples are walking through the temple, and they say to Jesus, look at these beautiful stones. And Jesus says, do you see these stones? He says, there's not one stone here that will be left upon another. Yeah. In other words, all be torn down. And we, see, we see, actually still see the rubble of the Temple Mount is laying on the outside of Jerusalem's wall, right outside the Temple Mount. All that rubble is still laying there, huge stones. You see those huge stones? That's from where the temple, that's where the temple was. And, uh, and so Jesus prophesies about this uh, you know, 35, 40 years before it happens. And he says that this event, this destruction of Jerusalem, is, is the moment in which we, uh, from then, anytime on, the uh, promises that God has made to us can be fulfilled. In other words, at any time after the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus could have returned. Believers in, in every generation have expected Christ to return. As well we should, because we don't know the day or the hour, and, uh, and yet we know that there's really nothing holding him back, right? Right. Uh, some Christians believe that, that there was a period in which Christ could not have returned until the Jews returned to their homeland, and, uh, and some dispensational Christians even believe that until the temple is rebuilt, that once that's done, then Jesus can come back at any, at any time. Well, in fact, here what he says is, is that it can happen at any time, even now, and could have happened at any time in the past almost 2,000 years now, you know, 1,950 years. Uh, here, here's what he says here, uh, starting in verse 25. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. 
for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Now, folks, we are seeing this even now. Uh, uh, Signs in the sun and the stars and, and on the earth, distress of nations in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. You know, there was kind of these natural things that are happening. Uh, you know, what is constantly, what natural phenomena is constantly in our news these days? What do you hear about all the time on the news? Uh, some story about global warming, right? And, um, and because of global warming, there's going to be encroachment of the seas. Florida's going to be drowned and San Francisco's going underwater and and uh, it's a horrible thing. We got to do something about this, right? right. Uh, or uh, there's going to be um, these massive hurricanes that we've never seen before because the earth is getting warmer and all these storms are going to be more violent, right? And, uh, uh, and what is that? But this perplexity of the nations, which is what Jesus tells us here. The nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. We're scared of the ocean, folks, Right? <laughs> And, uh, and this, you know, what is a, the roaring of the sea and the waves? It sounds like a hurricane to me, right? right. And uh, so uh, you will have fear from the nations because of what is coming on the world, Jesus says. Uh, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. Now, that's true not only of the kind of the natural phenomena, the waving of the sea and the oceans, uh, but it's uh, the waves and the sea, he says here. But you have these uh, man-made phenomena, which you know, we've witnessed in the last few weeks, the, the attack on the uh, uh, center in San Bernardino, the, the attack in Paris, the attack in Colorado Springs on the abortion clinic, right? Uh, violence, you know, and, and people trying to get their way by violence. It's just it's what always happens, right? right. And, uh, and, of course, you have a lot of people that are upset about this. What do we do about this, you know? Uh, the heads of France and Russia are petitioning our president. Let's do something about it. Something has to be done. Something has to be done. Well, I think in a, in a civil sense, uh, it's true. Something has to be done. But, uh, but these are all just things that happen before Jesus returns. Now, they've been happening since the beginning, since Jesus rose from the dead. All these, all these wars and rumors of wars, they've already been happening. Uh, persecution of Christians is another sign that Jesus talks about. Oh, my goodness. We're almost done here, aren't we? Well, folks, uh, you know, I, I get talking and I sometimes lose track of time. I thank you for being with us. We want, to remember, we want you to remind you there is a hope. Jesus is coming. And there is a distinction between the believer and the unbeliever because of Christ who died and rose again on our behalf. Uh, Gethsemane Lutheran Church, we invite you to come Sunday morning, 1030, 219 East Church Street. We thank you for being with us. And we hope you'll join us next Friday for the Wittenberg Door. A creature was stirring, not even a mouse.